morning. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. And as you do, I want to just to say thank you uh, to you all as a church. As a couple weeks ago, um, I know the, the church um, did some things for me for being 10 years on staff, and my wife, after the fact, reminded me, um, you know, you never actually said anything. Um, they just... <laughs> You took the gift, and then you didn't say anything. I was like, yeah, that wasn't very good. My apologies. Um, so uh, I'm going to keep it short and sweet. I just wanted to, um, to just thank the church uh, for trusting me, for loving on me and my family, um, and for walking with us uh, over the last 10 years. Um, we walked through a lot of hard things together as a church over the last 10 years, um, and I'm thankful um, that I was able to be here to be a part of the ministry that took place. So I um, just want to thank you all for that. As we get started today, I want to uh, remind you of last Sunday. So uh, last Sunday, as we spent some time in prayer, we, one of the things I asked was that we would pray for our own hearts, that God would begin to prepare us for whoever um, the Lord would be bringing here to be our next pastor, to prepare our own hearts. And uh, the scripture we're going to look at today is going to go a long ways towards that, I believe. And so uh, if we remember the truth that's presented in these passages today, then it's going to help us live like Jesus and help prepare us for what's to come. And so this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 20. And so uh, go ahead and uh, follow along. Uh, I want to read this to you. Um, I don't know if I've got the same translation up there or not, but that's okay. So here's what it says, starting in verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take part Take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute. Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple? of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Let's pray together, and uh, then we'll dive in this morning. God, thank you for this opportunity. God, I pray that your Spirit uh, is present among us, God, that you um, would speak to whoever, however you need to this morning, uh, myself included, Lord. Um, just use me as a willing vessel, and God, just... Let your words be the truth that are spoken. Um, God, we love you. We thank you for giving us your word in order to help us draw close to you and get to know you uh, in a beautiful relationship that you've given us. And so we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so the passage we're going to look at today is actually pretty timely considering the culture and society that we live in. And so when, when Paul wrote to the church uh, of Corinth, they were dealing with a lot of sin within the church, Okay. Um, because believe it or not, there's a lot of sin within the church body. And so he was dealing with a lot of these things and writing to that end. And as we can tell by the theme of this passage, uh, one of the, the main issues that was 
going on there was there was sexual immorality running wild within the church. The city of Corinth was known for being a hypersexualized society, much like our nation is today. And so I touched on this in a previous message in 1 Corinthians, but I want to remind you a little bit uh, of this. And so uh, it was so prevalent, this sin of sexual immorality in Corinth, that the phrase to play the Corinthian meant to play the whore. And so literally, the, the, the town of Corinth was associated and tightly connected with the idea of sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, they had a temple there that was built for the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite, where there were over a thousand prostitutes that would wait there. And that's where people would meet to go and then to, to get their prostitute and go do whatever they were going to do. And so it was something that was a part of their culture. It was the worship of sex was part of their pagan religion. See, Corinth was the poster child for sexual immorality. It was ingrained in their culture. It was a part of who they were, what they did. And I would suggest our society's becoming more that way if they're not already there. See, for you and me, the reality is that living in the place that we do right now and the culture that we do right now means that each of us is affected by sexual immorality in some way. It affects everything around us, right? It affects... um, uh, it's on our phones, it's on our TVs, it's on billboards, it's talked about in the music that plays all over the place. It's available to you at the tap of a finger if you have a smartphone. It's everywhere. Now for the church of Corinth, what made it even worse uh, was that the Christians thought that they had unrestricted freedom to live as they wished because the culture and the government approved of it. If we aren't careful in America, we can develop the same train of thought. That because the culture and the government says it's okay, that we begin to say that it's okay when God clearly says it's not. And so we're going to dive into this. And let's be clear here, all right? At the heart of every physical sin, uh, sorry, at the heart of every physical sin we commit, there is a heart issue. There's a heart issue at play. And so Paul is addressing the issue of sexual immorality, but he's also addressing this mindset that's up on the screen behind me. The ideology he's addressing here is the idea that it's my body and I can do with it what I want. That should sound familiar, because that's the world that we live in, not too different from the one 2,000 years ago that he spoke to. And we hear these kinds of statements all the time, all the time. And it seems to be a staple and a driving force of our culture, that no one has the right to tell you what to do because your body is yours and it's yours to do with what you please. And in Corinth, the Christians were engaging in sexual sins with prostitutes just like the rest of the world. They thought that because legally it was okay and that everybody else did it, uh, that they they were okay to do it as well. They were indifferent to the effect that it had on their body and on their spirit. And so we see that in our world today. People use this mindset, it's my body, I can do with it what I want, to justify all sorts of things to justify sexual choices, including homosexuality, or maybe transgenderism. Some use it to justify an abortion. Some use it to justify alcohol or drug use or whatever the case is. The same rationale that was used 2,000 years ago is being used today. And so it's nothing new. But Paul here is like, hey, that attitude's sinful. And you couldn't be further from the truth to speak that and to live that way. And so Paul calls them all out. And he uses several logical arguments to combat that mindset, all right? And we're going to dive into those. Uh, I want to remind you as we do that Paul is writing to Christians within the church, okay? He's not writing to non-Christians. 
So these things that he's speaking of, he's not writing them to them. He's writing them to the church because these things were prevalent within the church. And so by the time he's done, Paul has this solid argument built against this way of thinking for those that are followers of Jesus. And so we're going to look at some of these arguments that Paul makes. And here's the first one. Uh, The first argument is that everything you want to do isn't beneficial for you. That's the first one he makes in verses 12, uh, mostly just verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And so when Paul says everything is permissible, and he says it twice, that's most likely a common saying that they would have heard all around Corinth. And so what it sounds like to me anyway is this is a way to say something in order to justify your behavior. That's what it sounds like. And so Paul agrees that these things are permissible, but he doesn't stop there. And so what Paul is saying in verse 12 is that even though some things are acceptable by, that law, by the law, that doesn't make them good. It doesn't make them good just because the law says they're okay. In Corinth, there were no laws against what someone could eat at that point. And there were also no laws against the sexual, sexual immorality that was there. And so Christians were using that to justify partaking in those things in overindulging, in gluttony, in sexual immorality. They were using that logic that there was no law against it, so it must be good, it must be okay, let's do it. And Paul points out a difference between the ideas of the food, which we read about in verse 13, uh, and the sexually immoral. And so here's what he says. Basically, all right, this is my summary. All right, In verse 13, he says that the food, food is good, right? Your body needs food. In order to physically live, you need food of some way, okay? So he says that it's good, but even food, something that is good, is only going to be necessary for a temporary time. Because if you read, it says God's going to do away with both of them. So it's only good for a temporary time. And so don't become enslaved to it. If you catch the end of verse 12, it talks about uh, something not being mastered by anything. And so he says here that even something like food that is good and necessary when overindulged in gluttony can become a master to you. And so he calls him out. But here's the difference, all right? He then goes on to say the body is not, however, meant for sexual immorality. So even though it's legally permissible in Corinth at the time, even though it's permissible, it's not what you were created for. And it offers no benefits to the body. It doesn't mesh with God's design for mankind. And so he says you can't compare these two things because one is necessary for life and one isn't. Food and the body go together. Sexual immorality and the body do not. And so he reminds them that your body is for the Lord. This is back uh, in verse uh, 13. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Your body is for the Lord. It's for his purposes, not your purposes, not my purposes. Using your body for the Lord's purposes is always going to be beneficial. And so when he uses that word beneficial, that's what comes to mind for me. When we're using our body, our life, our whole being for the Lord's work, it's going to be beneficial. Not only for us, but for those that we're serving and those that we're in contact with. But these other things, these, the sexual immorality that he's addressing is a selfish mindset. And so the body's main purpose is to serve and to honor the Lord. It's to be an instrument of righteousness to holiness. And whenever we give in to things like sexual immorality, uh, we become an instrument of uncleanness, which is the opposite of what God intended. And so in our world today, we've got examples of things that are culturally acceptable and even legal by the law that 
And I'm going to give a couple of these examples. But that doesn't mean they're beneficial, and it doesn't mean they're God-honoring. So uh, I'm going to use marijuana as one. I'm not going to use it, by the way. That's, that came out wrong. <laughs> one of my examples <laughs> is marijuana, okay? And so uh, it's, it's legal now in most places. Legally and culturally, it's okay to smoke it, but is it beneficial? See, the law can't be the, the be-all, end-all of our decisions. The worldly law can't be the be-all, end-all of our decisions. We have to consider what certain decisions say about our character. Are they in line with Scripture? What do they say about our witness? What do they say about our profession of faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior? Some things that are lawful can dominate us. We can become a slave to them. And that word dominate in this passage means to make a slave of. That's literally it. You're becoming enslaved to something. And so we can become enslaved to the things that the law says are okay. Another example, homosexual marriage. Legally, culturally acceptable at this point. In many places anyway. I'll say it's legally in many places. But should we do that? Should we support it simply because it's legal? It's not beneficial, and it's not beneficial because the things that are the most beneficial are the things that honor God. And because it doesn't, it's not beneficial. And so we have these examples in our society much in the same way. The scripture ends with saying, and the Lord is for the body. See, Christ is to be the Lord of the body, to have dominion over it. And so we must be careful that we don't use what belongs to the Lord as if it were our own to do with what we please and to dishonor him in the process. And then we get to Paul's second argument, which is in verse 14. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And that argument is that we're raised up with Christ. And I think this has like a twofold meaning. All right, there's a, there's a more, uh, there, there's one as far as like on earth what that means for us as well as eternity. And so in being raised up with Christ, we put to death the old self and put on the new self. Romans 6.6 6 says that our old self was crucified with him so we would no longer be slaves to sin. If you've given your life to Jesus, your old self was crucified with him and you are no longer under the mastery of sin. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 22 to 24, it says to lay aside our old self, which is corrupt. Agreed, right? It's corrupt. And then to put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. That's the likeness we're to seek after. Romans 12 then reminds us that we aren't to conform to the patterns of the world. In other words, we aren't to look like the world uh, in many ways because we put our worldly ways to death when we were raised up with Christ. So for this life, being raised up with Christ means that that, that death, that, that sin was put to death, that you were raised up to new life in Christ Jesus. And you're no longer enslaved to it anymore. For eternity, there's a hope of a resurrection to glory. When, you, when we're resurrected with him in glory, bodies are perfect Everything is wonderful, it's perfect, and that idea, that thought, that promise that Scripture gives us of the hope of a resurrection of glory should restrain us from dishonoring our bodies in the present by giving in to the fleshly lusts that are so prevalent around us and within us. The third argument that he gives in verses 15 through 17 uh, says, your bodies are part of Christ's body. Your bodies are part of Christ's body. And so being united with Christ and united with sin are two incompatible things. I don't know if you caught that. 
They're two incompatible things because God is holy. And so they're incompatible. That doesn't mean we're not going to sin. You've heard that a million times, but that we aren't slaves to it, as verse 12 speaks of, and as we just talked about. And so being joined with the Lord means we have His Spirit and a growing desire for the things that the Lord desires. Now, there's this idea of being part of His body. There's also the notion that we know that the church is the body of Christ, right? So there's, there's other far-reaching consequences for our sin as a part of the body of Christ. Because the church is the body of Christ, engaging in any sort of idolatry or sexual sin or other sin causes division within the church and it harms the whole body. That secret sin that you're committing, you think it has no effect on those around you or the part of the family of God that you're a part of. It does. It affects us. My sin affects you all. If our bodies are members of Christ, it says we've joined together with him. That would be a relationship that we are called to be faithful in. And so we can't be joined together with Christ and, and live a life that constantly chooses sin because it's my body and I can do with it what I want. As part of Christ's body, we're joined with him in spirit. And so being joined with him in spirit, we can't also be joined in physical union with something or someone that contradicts the spirit of God. And so when someone commits a sexual sin, their soul is also affected and their relationship with God is affected. Your bodies are a part of Christ's body. The fourth argument that he lays out is in verse 18, and that's that it's a sin against your own body. And I'm not going to dive into this in great detail, okay? But it's a sin against your own body. It's, it's self-destructive on several levels, okay? Um, one being the fact that sex unifies people in a way that nothing else can. And whenever you do that, it talks about the two becoming one flesh. You're giving control of yourself and your body to another human instead of giving it to God. And so that is intended for the marriage relationship, marriage relationship only. And the way that the church in Corinth was living was it was basically seemed like a free-for-all. And that's the way our society portrays it in many ways. If something is harmful to the body and the spirit, like sexual sin is, Paul tells them to flee from it. All right, And that word flee, um, you can figure out what it means. It's pretty simple. It literally means run away from it. Right? You're going to get as far away from this thing as humanly possible. You're going to escape it. Escape is the other word that is the word, what it means, to escape from it. You're going to get away. You're going to run away as far as possible. You're not going to toe the line and get as close to sexual sin or other sins as you possibly can. Right? If something's going to be harmful for you, you're not going to pursue it. Right? I'm not going to go out and pursue getting in a car accident that's going to cause me pain. I'm not going to go out and pursue a broken relationship with somebody because it's going to cause me pain. I'm not going to go around looking for a rusty nail on the ground that I can step on because I know it's going to cause me pain. Right? You're going to try to avoid the things that are harmful to you. And so when Scripture says that this is harmful, that should be a flag to avoid it. We don't, it's, it's, it's the only time, in, in, in my, as far as my small brain can, can comprehend, it's the only thing where I feel like we give into it as far as something that's harmful for us. It's like, it's like these ideas that, um, like it, it's, it's counter to logical thought to do things that would intentionally harm you. It's counter to logical thought, but the draw of sexual sin is so much that it makes one think illogically. The draw of it is so much that it makes us think unclear. 
and then we give in. It's harmful to us, and the things that are harmful to us, we're called to flee from. Argument number five, and this is where I'm going to camp out here for a few minutes, all right? Uh, Argument number five, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, when I was preparing, I was, I was thinking about only preaching through verses 19 and 20, but I decided to go ahead and cover the whole section. And so, uh, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to consider a few things about the temple and what that means, all right? Uh, what was the temple? <clears throat> Excuse me. Who was responsible for its care? What was the person's role? Those types of things. And so, uh, what was the temple? The temple was the dwelling place of God. It's where God's God's presence and God's glory were. And so that was was what the temple was. And so at creation, God used the earth as his dwelling place. His presence was found in the Garden of Eden. If you read in Genesis 3.8, it talks about how he walked in the garden. And so from the beginning, God's desire was always to dwell with his people. That was always his desire, was to dwell with his people. And And that the world itself was designed to house the glory of God. But then sin entered, and where his presence was had to change. And so at that point, uh, we we read in Exodus chapter uh, 25 through 31 that during their wandering in the wilderness, uh, the presence of God dwelt in a mobile tabernacle that they would move from place to place. And then after that, there was the more permanent temple in Jerusalem. All right? And then before we get to this idea of the Spirit dwelling in us, we have Jesus come in the flesh to the world. And there's some interesting, uh, just some interesting connections here and some things that Jesus does with the temple that I think uh, I need to speak to. And so we come and we read in Luke 2.49 about this, 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 this story that most of you have heard and hopefully not done too many times where you leave your kid behind and have no clue that you left them behind. Um, <laughs> And so that's what they do. They get miles away. And they're like, anybody seen them? No? Well, now we've got to turn around and go back, right? And so uh, I'm not going to ask for stories of how many people actually left a kid somewhere, but that's between you and God. Um, and so Jesus, Jesus comes, and, and he's in Luke 2.49. We read about a time that he was in the temple. And his parents come because they come back because they're you know, scared, worried, because they couldn't find him. And he's like, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Think about that answer for a moment. What he's saying is, Jesus is reminding us that God's presence dwelled in the temple. And even as a child, he was already from that point saying that God was his father. Even at that early age. See, us being the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, is very much a great responsibility and something to be taken seriously. As a matter of fact, on two different occasions, Jesus cleanses the temple. He does it once at the beginning of his ministry. In John chapter 2, we read about it. And then the second time is recorded in three out of the four Gospels, just after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I want to read one of those versions to you. In Luke chapter 19, verses 45 to 48. This is great. I want you to listen to this. It says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It's written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Not just to harm him, to destroy him. But they didn't find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. 
I love how that's worded. They were hanging on his words. You see, Jesus goes in in Luke 19 to clear the temple because the temple wasn't being used for its intended purpose. Okay? The intended purpose was the worship and glory of God. And it wasn't being used for that. So Jesus returned the temple to its rightful purpose, is what he did. He used it for prayer. He used it for the teaching of God's word. And as as God's temple, which is this, this verse tells us that we are, through a relationship with Jesus, he restores us to our rightful purpose, which is to worship him. Now, in order for our temple to be kept in order, in order for you and I to continue to fulfill God's purpose, uh, we need to be hanging on every word of Scripture. Just like it says that they were hanging on, it was like there was nothing they could do because these people were clinging to the words of Jesus. There wasn't anything they could do about it. When society comes after, when culture comes after, when whatever the case is, cling to the words of Jesus. So Jesus comes. He lives. He dies. He's resurrected. And the place of God's dwelling changed, right? We, we read at his, at his crucifixion and at his death that the veil was torn. And the place of God's presence and his dwelling changed. It's now inside of us. We are his temple, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is a huge responsibility because the temple was something that had significant value, but also because God continues to emphasize, we see here, his desire to be present with and to dwell with his people. So it's such a significant thing because it further emphasizes the fact that not only did God desire to dwell with his people so much that he sent his physical presence in the form of Jesus, but then he gives us his presence even after Jesus goes because he still wants to dwell with us. That's crazy. The God of the universe that knows your dirty little secrets and mine wants to dwell with me, wants to be with me and to be present with me. Now, the temple is the place where God dwells, and it exists for his use and for his purpose. And because it's his dwelling place, it's for him to use as he pleases. We're not our own. We were bought with a price, and we'll touch on that here in a little bit. Our bodies were made for God. They were purchased for him. And so our bodies must be kept as his, whose they are. And they need to be fit for his indwelling. Now, who was responsible for the care of the temple? There was a priest that was responsible for caring for the temple. And he had to be holy as he entered the presence of God. And what's interesting is we read in 1 Peter 2, verses 5 through 9, that believers in Christ are a holy priesthood. Interesting. So not only are you the temple in which he dwells, you're also the priest responsible for taking care of it. So how... Can we be in God's presence when we aren't holy? Because that was, that, was that was the job of the priest, right? The priest had to, uh, to do certain sacrifices and things on his own behalf so that he could approach God as holy whenever he went into the holy of holies. And so for us, how? We aren't holy. Here's how. We can be present with the Spirit because Jesus makes us positionally holy because of his life, death, and resurrection. And so positionally, we are that. And so because of that, he can, he can dwell in us as his temple. And so uh, we are part of this royal priesthood. And what was one of the roles of the priest, right? One of the primary roles was to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And so while Jesus' sacrifice was once 
for all sin, for all people, for all time, the question then becomes, what do we have to sacrifice? Because his sacrifice covered it all. So what do we need to do? And we read about that throughout Scripture. We read about it in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It tells us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And so previously, sacrifices in the temple were, uh, a sacrifice was made when something was killed, right? So this is interesting that it changes it to a living sacrifice. In other words, your life, my life, my whole life, my whole self is to be sacrificed at the feet of Jesus. It's to be given to him. It's to be submitted to him and under his submission to his will and not my own. That's what we're called to sacrifice. And so we're called to sacrifice things like unbiblical passions or reputations at times or a plethora of other things. And so to offer our bodies, we have to offer our whole selves as a living sacrifice. So we have a temple, which is the place where God dwells, which this says we are now, if you're a follower of Jesus. You're also the priest, the one who takes care of it, and the one who makes the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is your life. Your life, as you live in this world, sacrifice to him. And so because our body is a temple in which the Spirit dwells, that means it's not our own. It's not our own. Your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God for him to use for his purposes. As a Christian, it says this. It says that he bought you with a price. Guys, this wasn't like dime or nickel candy. Price. The price was hefty. The price was hefty. The price was the blood and the death and the life of God's only son. It wasn't cheap. And God looks at this price, this cost, the life that was purchased with the blood of the only perfect, sinless, holy human being to ever walk the face of the earth, his one and only son, Jesus. And God looked at the cost and said, you are worth it. Try to wrap your mind around that. I know me, and I don't understand that, but I'm thankful for it. He said, this is the cost, but you're worth it. And when we give our lives to him, we're saying thank you. We're submitting to him as the leader of our life. And we sacrifice our whole selves, including our worldly passions and our desires for him. So when scripture tells us that we are now where the spirit of God dwells, that it dwells within us, it's fulfilling his purpose to dwell with his people. God has always desired that. And he promises that one day when we're in his kingdom, y'all, this, this promise is beautiful, that one day when we're in his kingdom, we'll experience the fullness of his presence, which is greater than anything we can even imagine. Someday we'll experience the full presence of God in all of its glory. But during our time on earth, our body is a temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. See, your body and mine are given to us by God for our time on earth. And because it's been given to you, it's not your own. You don't have the right to do with it whatever you please. I don't have the right to do with it whatever I please. We are the temple of the Spirit of God. And the last argument that he makes is the very last part of verse 20. That says we're to glorify God with our bodies. We're called to glorify God with our bodies. Since God made us and bought us, 
We belong to him, and we're to be used for him. And since we're to honor him with our bodies, we must surely abstain from things like sexual immorality, and not only physical acts, but adultery of the heart. Adultery of the heart. We're to abstain from that as well. Not lusting after folks, because I think the word lust sometimes gets disconnected from the idea of sexual sin. There's no reason for that. It's a part of it. And we're called to abstain from those things. We're called to live according to His will for His glory, not our own. In Philippians 1.20, this is the last verse I'm actually going to share with you guys. Uh, in Philippians 1.20, it says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. It's going to take courage in order to live a life that exalts Christ with our bodies, with our actions, with our whole being. It's going to take courage to say no when the government or society or culture or any number of people or things say to do something else. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And Paul here in this verse in Philippians says either by life or by death. In other words, no matter what state I'm in, God's going to be glorified regardless. See, putting Christ as our Lord, submitting our lives to Him requires us to put aside every right. And I put that in quotes, okay, because I know we're such a country built on rights. That every right that threatens to compromise our allegiance to him we're called to put aside it's not enough simply to abstain from evil we're called to praise god by the god by the active giving of ourselves to his service in daily life and i know i've talked with with some of my leaders uh, about this a little bit and i want to share this with you it was um of course i can't think of one of them right now basically the question that would drive our decisions um, the questions that we ask to drive our decisions, you know, in the, whatever it was, 90s, early 2000s, it was the what would Jesus do motto, right? Um, that's the question we have to ask before we do everything. And that's a good one. Um, one of the questions that I typically try to ask um, is, does this glorify God? Does it glorify God? And the other question that I typically ask is this, does this make me look like the world? Because we're called to be different. Y'all, we're called to be different from the world. We're not to look like them. And so if my decisions make me look exactly like the world, I'm doing something wrong. I'm not following and submitting to the will of God. So I'd encourage you in that. So as we close, which we've covered what we need to in this passage, I want to challenge us this morning. I want to challenge us to not live with the mindset of the church of Corinth, that it's my body and I can do what I want with it. Because if you're a believer, that's not true. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, that's not true. I want to challenge us to not give in to the cultural norms, even when pressured to. And this morning, I want to ask that you consider Christ. Consider the price that he paid to purchase you. How much he loves you and how he wants the best for you. That submitting to him doesn't mean submitting to something lesser. It means submitting to something greater. 
Because he's got something better for you than what your earthly pleasures desire. It's greater. I want to challenge you to consider your actions and whether you're choosing things that are beneficial to you and glorifying to God. And really, it should be beneficial to your soul, beneficial to others, and glorifying to God. And consider that as you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, are you creating a hospitable environment for the Spirit to dwell? That one's hard. You creating a hospitable environment for the Spirit to dwell, because it dwells within you, dwells within me as followers of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you this morning for this opportunity. God, I'm thankful that even though there are times we think the Bible is silent on things that are going on, Lord, that we can look at a passage like this and look at something that happened several thousand years ago that's still just as relevant now as it was then. That, God, all of your word is just that, always relevant. So, God, I thank you this morning for your word. God, I just ask that you would take this time, God, that you, in your goodness, in your glory, in your desire to mold us into your image, would speak to people the way that you desire this morning. God, I'm humbled by the fact that you would choose to dwell within us. And yet I'm challenged to be able to live a life of sacrifice to you. God, we know that we're going to fall. But through the cross, you've shown us how valuable we are and how much you love us and how much you care for us. God, we thank you this morning for giving your life for ours, for trading places with us and taking our spot on the cross to pay that debt that we could never pay on our own. God, we thank you for the new life that comes, giving our life to you, that we aren't enslaved to the old self anymore, God, but that we are yours. God, I just ask that you would take this time and do with it as you desire.